Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session, real life edition. I'm joined by Adil Dowd. Professor Dowd is a professor of medicine here at UCSF. He is a um, metastatic melanoma expert, and he's been on the faculty here for now. How long has it been, about a decade? It's been 12 years, a fairly long time. Fairly long time. Now it feels like home. Now it does feel like home. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I got so many questions for you about, about melanoma. But first, I wonder if you might tell listeners a little bit, this is um, a little bit about where you trained in medical oncology, where you were initially on the faculty, and then what brought you here to UCSF. Uh, sure. I went to medical school in India. I am originally from Nagpur, uh, you know, which is uh, in the center of India. And then I, uh, was, uh, I did my internship and residency at uh, Indiana University mm-hmm. uh, in Indi- Indianapolis. And then I did my uh, fellowship at Memorial uh, Sloan Kettering. I was there in New York City from 97 to 2000. And then I was on a faculty at, at Memorial for a year in 2001. Then we moved to Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, which is where I was till 2008. And then ever since then, I've been here at UCSF. I see. So you have um, overlapped with some prior guests of this podcast. George Sledge has been a guest on this show. Oh, yeah. I know George Sledge pretty well. I was... Um, resident at IU when I first met him, you know, when he was yeah. attending there at uh, Indiana University. Yeah, Indiana University was a, was a great place when I was, and, and actually, uh, partly because of George Sledge, but, but, but also because of Larry Einhorn mm-hmm. and uh, many of the other folks, Alan Sandler, I was, oh, I yeah. was interested, I became interested in, in oncology, uh, partly because of my, you know, experiences there at IU, it seemed like, you know, testicular cancer had gone from I mean, I just, just yeah. I'm dating myself here <laughs> <laughs> to to becoming curable, and uh, there was a lot of uh, you know hope in those days that you know other cancers would follow testicular cancer and you know higher dose therapy. I, again, I'm dating myself. Yeah, you know people were talking about like dose intensification and breast cancer and like doing uh, autologous transplants. Yeah, transplants and stuff like that. with carboplatin for testicle cancer in the relapse setting and. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm around that, but it was really a, a, a really a great time at IU. I mean, so many giants in in medical oncology were there all at the same time that you were there as a resident. Yeah, and uh, in addition, there was a lot of interesting stuff being done on uh, in lymphomas, bladder mm-hmm. cancer. Um, there was uh, the the you know gemcitabine had just right. become. Uh, available, and I think there was a trial with GEMSYS, I remember, yeah, in bladder, bladder cancer. Don't worry, it remains a standard of care. <laughs> <laughs> it remains a standard of care. They, have, they, they've ad, they have now, they have maintenance of Elumab, but they add a little IO, but yeah, they're still, they got it's the GEMSYS a, backbone. Yeah. It's, a, it's a pretty interesting thing how things uh, stay the same, and but, but also change, yeah. you know? And then, um, when you were a fellow at Memorial, Melanoma was that? That was not your initial interest. I remember you. That, that was not my initial interest. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I uh, had uh, I talked to Alan Houghton several times <laughs> and Jed Wolchok actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know him really well, uh, and then I remember attending the the Alan Houghton used to have these meetings where people would talk about immunotherapy and, and you know uh, at that time there was a, a 
uh, phase two cancer vaccine trial being done, I believe with uh, KLH, Mm-hmm. GM1, mm-hmm. I, I believe that was the trial. And I, I even saw some of the patients who had responded to this vaccine, you know, who had in-transit melanoma responded to the vaccine. But then subsequently, it turns out that in phase three trials, uh, those vaccine trials really failed. So, so yeah, I, I'm pretty well acquainted with the disappointments of immunotherapy. Uh, but I, I do think that Alan Houghton and, and many of the people, Lloyd Old, mm-hmm. uh, had this... Um, feeling at the time that uh, you know immunotherapy might have failed in 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 the trials that we were actually doing but eventually it had great Potential. promise and I and I think that's has stayed with me all through my career even though the last I guess the, the 10 years following that memorial were, were I would say busts for yeah. immunotherapy you know that's what I'm so interested by because I think you know from Prior to 20, 2011 was the approval of ipilimumab, CTLA-4. And then it was a few years later that you had uh, PDL one And now with PDL one antibody, uh, PD-1 antibody and, and CTLA-4 antibodies, I think outcomes are much, much better than they were 20 years ago. Um, and the BRAF story also, right around that time, 2012, I think, the Venmorafinib New England Journal, uh, Paul Chapman's paper. Um, so I'm really curious, I guess, the first 10 years you were in the field, what was it like? Were you in the IL-2 business? Were you in the decarbazine business? Um, did you, were you optimistic? How, how did you feel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all, go, all great questions. And I remember talking to Jed Wolchok, and he told me, uh, you know, decarbazine, uh, you can give it weekly, you can give it every three weeks, you can give it in different forms, it doesn't matter, just, just you know, stick to decarbazine. And uh, I, th- that's, that's one of my parting messages, you know, after I talked to Jet, yeah, I hadn't done a lot of melanoma prior to moving to Moffitt. And so back in those days, it was, I, I think the big controversy in that time was interferon, you know, is does it work or not? Mm, and uh, at Memorial, people were very skeptical that interferon, uh, you know, was, was effective. There were three uh, randomized trials. The first trial was positive. The second trial was negative. The third trial was positive, but against a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so there was some question about the, whether the vaccine was detrimental. And ultimately, I think, the, to, just to summarize the whole interferon mm-hmm. field, I think most people think that it's not worth the, the risk uh, that, that patients have. And, and then I'll, I'll too go, you're right. But these interferon trials, were, weren't some, one was at least adjuvant study. Yeah, well, all three were adjuvant studies. Right, okay. All three were adjuvant studies, three, and so yeah. okay. it just—I uh, I guess you know—you know—I I read this description by uh, uh, Gilbert Ryle, you know, a philosopher, who said mm-hmm. that medicine is not a science as much as it is a set of techniques. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of—I I feel like as I grow older, I feel like that's more and more true because you know you have this uh, thing with trials where you know two trials out of three are positive or right. one tri- trial out of three is positive. Right. And what do you make of that? Right. You know, in in physics or in chemistry or something, you know, there's some kind of theoretical basis. But right. in medicine, it, it isn't, like I, I, I feel like this, you know, we, we've had lots of discussions about Nevo versus Pembro, right. which are pretty similar to each other. And it's interesting that if you look at head and neck cancer, for Nevo, the trials have been negative. For, right. for Pembro, they're positive. Well, right. how can that even be? Right. And so some of that has to do with trialees. And yes. I almost think that in this type of situation, you know, the for the FDA, whether it makes sense to just approve that class of drugs, because yes. it's so implausible yes. to me yes. that 
Pembroke could really be superior to Nevo in that one setting, and then in some other setting, Nevo is superior to Pembroke. I feel like some of those, these differences are just trialies. Right. Right? This, I agree with you. It's the specific, um, I agree with you, the specific cutoffs used, PDL1-5, or the specific antibody used for stain, they vary um, in different tumor types, you know. Um, certainly the solid tumors where there is some relationship between uh, CPS scores and staining and, and response. Um, but it's really kind of uh, luck of the draw that some one wins and one doesn't. Um, but I will say there's something interesting to me, like in non-small cell lung cancer, um, all of they're all winners. Okay, so that tells you something, like it's really, really good. But there's some places where, you know, like small cell, there are two winners, a Tezo and Dervalumab, but Nevo, Pembro both lost, and the winners only win by a month. And so in those cases, I wonder, are they really winners or are they others? are just getting a little bit lucky. And so, you know, I'm very interested in the developing methods around this um, multiplicity, or like how do you account for multiple shots on goal? Some will be chance positives, some will be real, but I think your point is true that when you have a real biological signal, it doesn't make sense to exclude some, but not, and you know, just to prove the class. And, and yeah, because I mean, if you think about the enormous expense of getting new drugs approved, and mm -hmm. you know, like you're you're encouraging some of these pharmaceutical companies to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get an approval, and in one when there's already multiple approved agents of the same class, you know, is that a really good use of uh, of, of healthcare dollars to just, uh, and I, you know. I feel like something analogous is happening with the COVID vaccines where, mm -hmm. you know, you see that FDA is approved like from 11 to 18 or, you know, I don't know, five to seven and a half or does it, are these real cutoffs that have any kind of meaning or basically, you know. Yeah, or, they're arbitrary, very they're arbitrary. arbitrary. I mean, and, and they the, have small randomized trials and these cutoffs, but yeah. And, and it's, uh, yeah, so I, I think you know, in our field, I feel like there's a lot of uh, attention paid to trialies and like you yeah. say, like CPS5 or CPS10. Uh, it almost makes sense to just, to broaden those, uh, you know, approvals so that you don't get only second line, but not third line. Right. And you know, right. those types of approvals that you see where it's 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 hard to believe that, right. uh, and I, I remember having a conversation with Larry Einhorn many, many years ago about, uh, I think this was about non-small cell lung cancer. And, and I think back in those days, you know, we were talking chemo and, and I, I don't remember the exact agent, but I, I remember him saying that, you know, there's a lot of, you can easily overfit data. Like, you know, if you have one trial that's negative, two trials that are positive to, you know, just, just looking at the whole body of right. research, can you really make a case for it not working in that one situation, but working in those two, right. you know, and I and I think, I mean, I like the pragmatic yeah. aspects of medicine, but I also feel like we do overfit a lot of data, yeah, you know. Yeah. We and, tell ourselves a story why it worked with one, but not the other. Right. But the reality might just be luck of the draw. Might, might just be luck of the draw. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like if you look at breast cancer yeah. and, and uh, uh, like, uh, hopefully I'm getting the names right, but abemocyclib yeah. versus... Yes, palbocyclib. Palbocyclib. Palbo's negative for OS, is a winner for OS. For OS, right, so, right. I mean, is that... Ver no, there's all, it's all very subtle differences. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's highly unlikely that, you know... Or maybe, yeah. Or, 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 or who knows. Yeah. But, but I feel like some of these differences have to do with trial-specific, right. uh, you know, conduct rather than a true difference between the right. agents, you know, on a global level. No, that's really that's 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 a, that's a very fair and thoughtful point, especially now in in melanoma where, you know, you only have so many patients and you have so many companies with so many PD one antibodies trying to get to market. 
but I guess maybe we'll come back to that. I want to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, um, I, wanted to, I wanted you to walk us through a little bit about your thinking about a few things, because I'm very curious. One, um, for the patient who walks into your office with uh, relapsed or metastatic, um, uh, metastatic melanoma, who, um, and let's say they're BRAF V600E, um, you know, is who are the people you reaching for? Did dreams seek affect your practice? Who are the people you're reaching for checkpoint inhibitors first? Who are the people you reach for dual checkpoint inhibitor? Who do you give single checkpoint inhibitor to? Who do you give BRAF inhibitors to? How do you think about the differences between debrafenib, vemurafenib, and encorafenib? Uh, uh, and How do you think about those different drugs? I think the, the DreamSeq trial, I yeah. mean, I, I think uh, practically everybody I know thinks that the the immunotherapy combo would have been superior. It's simply because, you know, if you look at the immunotherapy uh, trials, especially the combination immunotherapy trials, mm -hmm. the long-term survival outcomes are, have been way superior to the BRAF-MEC combination trials. So in, in academia, mm -hmm. people don't use, commonly don't use BRAF inhibitors for BRAF mutant patients. People pretty much all use immunotherapy. Now, single agent versus a dual agent immunotherapy, that's a complicated, Mm -hmm. field, you know, yeah. if, if you can get away with using single agent immunotherapy, people do. But what my experience has been, and I don't, I think that's true for other people too, is that back when dual checkpoint inhibitors came in, mm -hmm. you know, we all pretty much stuck to the recipe book and, you know, give three milligrams per kilogram of AP and, mm -hmm. and one milligram per kilogram of Nevo. Right. That regimen given over four cycles is pretty toxic. Right. And you know, the grade three, four toxicity is like, you know, you're talking 55%, mm -hmm. you know, many of them are very severe. I think as time has gone by, what many of us have started doing or have learned to do anyway, is to mix and match the doses, you know, skip IPI, or if you have liver function test abnormalities or low grade diarrhea, not keep going and keep making that low grade diarrhea into a like a really life threatening mm -hmm. colitis event, I see. which so I think, did happen a little bit earlier on where people were maybe ignoring some of the warning signs, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the small rise of ASD ALT. So I think over time, I would say that I've shifted a lot of patients who I thought uh, could only get single agent treatment to, to dual I see. Uh, checkpoint. But, and what dose of IP are you going with? A lower dose? What I try to do is start off at three mix per kg. But then low threshold to reduce. Low threshold to reduce, and I and and I think most of the trials actually show that if you use one yeah. make per keg, and right. you know I was just talking to Jason Luke today, oh. and and he was just telling me that he basically treats everybody with the low dose IP because it's right. just as good, less toxic, and I and I don't disagree with him, but I also think that you can start high and yeah. you can skip doses or you can do IP every six weeks or you can. Or you can even do two cycles of Ipi Nevo and then just switch and to and then just stop and AP, then just yeah. stop it and just go to Nevo. So over time, I'd say that the toxicity, even from standard garden variety Ipi Nevo, the, the usual is 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 much lower now. It's rare to have very serious toxicity with Ipi Nevo, just simply because you don't you just don't persist, you know, yeah. in giving it. I see. Yeah, you're 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 not pushing on the gas as much. You're more uh, eyes are more open to toxicity, and you're able to make uh, course corrections as they come. Right. Okay, but then here's my question. What if there, are there any unusual situations where you reach for the BRAF inhibitor first? I recently got this as a question. A patient, de novo, um, metastatic melanoma. Uh, the patient doesn't have a lot of systemic disease, but has 20 brain mets. Um, and, it's, and it's V600E. 
So, you know, 20 brain mats, how are you going to, yeah, what are you going to do? If it's 20 brain mats and you need steroids, yeah. then that might be somebody that you'd go with BRAF mat. Okay. Because if you, once you've started, uh, and, and you know, for those of us in academia, if you see 20 brain mats, you probably wouldn't reach for the steroids right away mm -hmm. unless you had symptoms sure. and unless you had progressive, you know, seizures or something like that. Uh, but for a lot of people, they reflexly start people on steroids uh, and then, uh, and that can, if that patient comes to you on, like say, Q, like six milligrams of dexamethasone every six hours, Correct. okay, and then you've already had that for a few days, right. you, you're probably not going to get a Great high response, response rate, right? right. It's, it's it's about twenty percent, fifteen to twenty percent with epinevo. Mm -hmm. So I think in that situation, I think BRF mech might be a reasonable start. Okay. What the problem with the high volume, yeah. rapidly progressive disease is that. You can get a nice response for BRAF mech, but it's going to be a short right. response, and yeah. especially brain meds, uh, six months, yeah. uh, three months to six months, you're, you're probably going to get progression. So, Will you also radiate? These people, I think you'd start them and radiate. And, and you, you could do that. Yeah. You could radiate them. Uh, but if you can possibly get them onto immunotherapy, I, I think that would be one uh, you know, one way out. I think, you know, I, I know we've discussed triple therapy extensively. Right. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about that. <laughs> now we have randomized data. Now we have randomized data. Atezo. Atezo. Uh, yeah. So to me, all those three trials, the Atezo plus Bemcovi trial and uh, the the uh, Dabtram plus Bartolizumab trial. Okay. And then the Dabtram plus Pembro trial. Okay. Keynote 22. All three of them really are marginal you know, marginally negative or marginally positive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the Tezo Bem Kobe trial has altered my thinking, right. you know, in terms of upfront treatment, which is which is the setting in which it was used. And for, for many, many reasons, but but basically you're I, I think you're discarding some of the benefits of immunotherapy, which is that you're basically now uh, needing to give that person ongoing continuous therapy for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Which is true for for targeted therapy too, but uh, if you start somebody off with targeted therapy, at least plausibly you could go to immunotherapy mm -hmm. in the next line. If you start somebody off with immunotherapy in the first line, you could plausibly go to targeted therapy in the second line. So in a sense, you're combining all of those treatments and you're somewhat reducing the value of salvage, targeted, or yes, immunotherapy just, just because of the way you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in that type of situation using PFS isn't totally a legitimate endpoint because obviously when you're combining two mm -hmm, therapies, mm -hmm. one therapy that works 30% of the time, mm -hmm. let's just say one therapy that works 60% of the time, and you're ending up with 62 or 65%, mm -hmm. you know, yes. that additional PFS benefit I, I think is not a not as valid of an endpoint. Yeah, so combining drugs previously used in sequence of course, PFS will be better, but then the question is, what are you left with when you prep progression? Right, exactly. And then your other point sounds like to me that there's some people who are going to be taking this cocktail who are benefiting from the checkpoint inhibitor, but they're going to have the BRAF and MEK inhibitor on board, even though that's not doing any of the heavy lifting, and they're just having the toxicity from it. Right, yeah. right. And I, and I think in the case of Vemcobi, you know, you're, yeah. both of them are pretty heavy-duty target yeah. therapy drugs, and so you have... Uh, you know, you'll have all of that toxicities. It's just actually hard, I, I think, to use vemurafenib in California, simply because there's sunshine here. Oh, and unless you're 
really careful about putting sunscreen, sunscreen on. You get a lot of squim, mm -hmm. even AKs your and really well. Even your lips can be out. You know, if you if you don't sunscreen, you just have some some really significant sun toxicity. So I'd say that vemurafenib and cobimetinib, just because of that, have fallen out of favor. But my understanding is that the addition of the MEK inhibitor mitigates a lot of the sun toxicity from the earlier data. Well, it mitigates yeah. the, it mitigates the AK the, yeah, the okay. keratoacanthoma, but it doesn't yeah. mitigate the photosensitivity. Uh, Vemurafenib is just a very photosensitizing drug, sure. and so you could be sitting out in the sun for probably not me, but mm -hmm. but a, a person with uh, less skin. yeah right. fair skin could be sitting out in the sun. In Twenty minutes, you'll have a blistering sunburn really? with with wow. vemurafenib. So it's a tricky drug to use, mm. and. Uh, and even the Kobe doesn't reduce the photosensitivity. It, it reduces see. the secondary cancer risk right. somewhat. But uh, so, so I mean, I think the the choice between uh, in you know comes down to dabrafenib, trametinib, or encorafenib, pinimetinib, which I think are both good choices. You know, daptram, there's fevers and chills, and mm -hmm. You can have some lower extremity swelling. Okay. Uh, and and pinimetinib, I think, is a little bit more eye toxic than trametinib is. So you just have to be on top of eye exams and stuff like that, you know, if you if somebody's on bimetinib, but I'd say either one of them is a reasonable choice mm -hmm. uh, for somebody who's just rapidly progressing or for whatever reason you want to use BRAF MEK, which, I, you know, I mean, although I, I'm alive to the hype of immunotherapy right. and, and, and live and breathe the hype of immunotherapy, I would say, uh, the reality is that only about 20 to 30% of people will not need post immunotherapy treatment, you know, because they have a complete response or have such a good partial response mm -hmm. that you don't need to do follow-up treatment. So most BRAF mutant patients- Will eventually get it. Will eventually get immunotherapy, uh, will get targeted therapy because of progression from immunotherapy. I see, I see. So the way you think about it is dibrafenib, trametinib, and carafenib-binimetinib, uh, not any major differences, uh, and uh, but you don't like the benimorafenib in this climate because yeah, it's sunshine every day. Right. Yeah. I think on I think on the East Coast it might be more tolerable, and right. and you know if you're really careful about your sun protection, I think that might be might be a reasonable thing to do too. Interesting. That's very interesting. I'm curious, what are your thoughts about the new FUSP? What is it? Tabentafusp? No, the the uveal melanoma drug. The the Tabentafusp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tabentafusp. Is that it? Is a FUSP? So there's two FUSPs. There's a there's Tegraxofusp, which is that blastic plasma citrate dendritic cell cancer, and then there's Tebentafusp. How do you say Fusp or Fusp? Fusp. Well, I, I've been <laughs> pronouncing it Fusp, although I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. Well, you know, I always get people right. The, the listeners of this podcast, if I say something wrong, they're going to let me know. So I'll take responsibility. I've been calling it Tebentafusp, but if it's Fusp, you let me know. And um, this is a new class of agent. It recruits, you know, it recruits... A T cell, supposedly. How do, have you used it? How does it work? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, we haven't used it. I mean, okay. our, I haven't used it. I have. We didn't participate in the trials, but it is a really exciting uh, new advance, and it's. And I think it's exciting not so much that uh, it's super effective in um, in uveal melanoma. It's not very effective. I mean, as you know, most patients uh, have transient responses mm -hmm. or 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 don't even have responses. Yes. I think the the issue is is that. In in comparison to investigator choice yes. uh, therapy, which was which was basically temporal yeah. in in most patients, uh, you know you had a survival advantage, and I think the the 
uh, mechanism of action is that if you're GB100 positive, mm -hmm. GB100 is an intracellular antigen. Mm -hmm. So it's basically presented on the surface of melanoma cells in the context of HLA uh, A1. Mm -hmm. And if you have that HLA A201 subtype, which is about 40% of patients, you can uh, attract T cells. Okay. And it, interestingly, does not work very well for non-uveal melanoma. Okay. So, uh -huh. which is which is kind of an interesting yeah. little side note that yeah. maybe not everybody's aware of. It it was tested in both. I see. It actually oh, works initially. better okay. in uveal melanoma, which is huh. almost no melanoma drug Correct. has ever it's, shown. It's the that opposite of every other drug. Opposite of every other drug, but I think the fact that it could even work yeah. somewhat, yeah. I think is is exciting because there's a lot of intracellular antigens, and you know, there's mage, there's there's many many there's there's the cancer testis antigens, there's the different you know, mm -hmm. melanoma, just just tyrosinase. There's right. so many uh, intracellular antigens that that could potentially be uh, be presented this way. And if you could add a uh, like a kind of like a tetramer binding domain to an antibody, that that's basically what it is to a CD uh, three antibody. Uh, you could mm -hmm. basically uh, you know recruit T cells pretty much to any differentiated cancer type, and and you know melanoma is is very differentiated, you know, has has a lot of very peculiar antigens on it, but but really there's a lot of other cancers that have that same kind of property, you know, like breast I cancer, see. like so many, you know, there's mammoglobin. I mean, there's just yeah. so many different, pancreatic cancer has right. its own, you know. Intracellular antigens that are occasionally expressed on the cell surface. Right, exactly. So that's, a yeah, oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, it opens up the door to lots of other tumor types. To, to lots of other tumor types. And, and Tamenafus, I think, might be a transient drug because yeah. it isn't fully humanized. Yeah. And so it has to be given weekly. There's a lot of infusion reactions yeah. with uh, Tamenafus. And so eventually, I think a version could be made that is, you know, more... Humanized and more infusion friendly. Uh, you know, you, you get fevers and chills often with the infusion, and it had, and because of its very short half life, it has to be given weekly. So it's mm. it's it's a, you know, many of many drugs, many biospecifics have some FC engineering and mm. stuff to make their half life longer, and and presumably that could be done with Tebentaf or, or or a drug just like Tebentafus. It really, you know, the trial, I, I saw it. I saw that OS benefit. It was like five, six months. I was, my, was, my jaw dropped. But I, had a, I read it and I really struggled to try to make sense of how it's working because, as you say, the response rates are very low. Um, the PFS is improved, but modestly. Modest PFS improvement. I mean, the hazard ratio for PFS is 0.73. The hazard ratio for death is 0.51. So I've, it's very rare that I've seen a drug that, you know, the, 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 the OS signal is bigger than the PFS signal. I guess my only thoughts are maybe it has some post-progression activity. So you would see it in a PFS2. There might be like an improvement. If you get this first, it'll carry over in the PFS2. Maybe it continues to recruit immune um, T cells to the site afterwards. Naturally, my mind goes to the confounding variables, like maybe there was differences in po post-protocol care or something like that. But I looked, there's nothing, and there's really nothing that you can hang your hat on. Then I thought maybe the control arm wasn't fair, and I went down that rabbit hole of looking into what the control arm should have been. But, you know, it was pretty fair because most people got Pembro, few people got uh, Decarbazine. But to be honest, none of those drugs have worked that well, and there is no real established standard of care. So I thought it was overall, I couldn't find much fault with it. I can't explain it. 
totally agree with everything that you just said. I, I don't think that on the trialee standpoint, yeah. you could critique it. I, I think it was a nice, clean trial yeah. that, you know, the only thing you could say is that maybe they should have compared it to Epinevo, which is what a lot of people do. But 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 having said that, mm -hmm. it's a pretty clean. I, I think part of the problem with these drugs is that, you know, because you're attracting CD4 cells, most of the CD4 cells that you're attracting are non-specific, just random bystander lymphocytes, and and they don't have the same capacity to proliferate and stuff like that as, you know, if you had an antigen-specific T cell that really glommed onto that target, that mm. would be one thing. And I, I, I think that one of the reasons it works so well with liver meds, which is what yes, UVL right. now, yeah. is because the liver is just chock full of T cells, just, just random, you know, just, just CD8 yeah. cells and CD4 cells just hang out in the liver. That's kind of like the lounge <laughs> for T cells. Right. So because they're just there, just by proximity, you're yeah. kind of, Getting uh, getting a response, but I mean again, not to knock something that that works for the first time ever. Ever, yeah. Uh, OS benefit, you know, and that, decent size, decent really, size, decent yeah, size, no complaints, yeah, decent size, and and even Epinevo and and even some of the other treatments that have been used, like uh, I think there was this uh, pump that circulated. Uh, it's called Delcath. It circulated uh, DT or, or Melphalan through liver. I think those have not had. Randomized, no, correct, yeah. you know, even Epinevo doesn't have randomized. Even, even, even Epinevo, yeah. yeah. So we know Epinevo was ten to fifteen percent, but that's just a phase two trial, right. a large phase two trial, saying that yeah, it, it does work on occasion. Now, walk me through your thinking about a patient with localized melanoma, maybe a stage two or three, and they've been resected, and your use of, I guess, how do you think about nodal dissection these days, and how do you think about adjuvant therapy? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and. Uh, you know, nodal dissection has has gone uh, in the last few years it's from gone. yeah right <laughs> from from being the, the 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 standard of care where you'd be you know criticized for not doing it to mm -hmm. almost becoming one of those things where you're criticized for doing it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've I've seen uh, some some cases where people have you know had like lots and lots of nodes taken out for you know like a small volume. Mm -hmm. uh, metastatic, you know, involvement in one lymph node. I, I mean, I think I thought of central lymph node biopsy initially as as a staging tool, not as a survival enhancing kind of tool. I see. Uh, so to me, it is not surprising that, you know, just a nodal dissection itself right. doesn't improve survival because, right. you know, there's, there's been so many trials in melanoma, even dating back to the 70s, showing right. that completion lymph node dissection doesn't even improve survival. So it would be pretty surprising <laughs> if you, you know, found a, like a, a like a like a survival benefit in that situation. I think what uh, what what sometimes surgeons say is that if you look at MSLT2 and if you look at the DCOG trial, that you know, uh, patients the 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 randomization was to ultrasound follow up and. If you're not going to do ultrasound follow-up, then maybe you should do completion dissection. I see. Fair point. Okay. Just Interesting. only because yeah. that's what it takes a lot of surveillance. It takes yeah. a lot of surveillance, and then uh, in in patients who have um, extra nodal disease, people who have multiple lymph nodes, those were again those were excluded from the trial. Whether you should go to um, yeah. lymph node dissection in those cases where mm -hmm. you know they're outside the. But but I guess my response to that is that even if you look at those cases where you have multiple lymph nodes involved. There's never been any proof that completion lymph node dissection in those patients improves survival either. Right. Okay, that's right. just you know, yeah. it's just conjecture. It makes sense. Yeah, and so you know, like like we say in medicine, a lot of stuff makes sense, and yeah. so we do it. But it only makes sense until it 
you know, until, you know, in a certain case, you try it and then it doesn't make sense. And now, now you wonder if that whole line of approach is really makes that sense. much sense. And what about the use of, um, you know, some of those trials? I think I forget the start date of MLST two, but I mean the the relationship between start date and PET CTs. I mean, now with PET staging is almost obligatory. Um, did they was that routine when they ran that study? No, no, okay, and, and, yeah. and 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 actually, if you look at the AJCC staging for melanoma, yeah. if you you could pick any stage, you could pick stage two disease, stage three disease. Every stage is just a lot better. Yes, and of course, I like to think that immunotherapy is yes, helping, and, yes. and maybe it is helping but a little stage bit. Stage migration, a Let's little bit. It, yeah. yeah. And right. let's explain that. So I guess this is this uh, phenomenon, stage migration, also called the Will Rogers effect. And I don't know, you ever heard the story about Will Rogers? I'll tell you. No, I haven't. I, I'm sorry, I've not grown up in the US, so I, I, <laughs> well, it's, I, a, it's uh, American arcana it's, that yes. I don't like baseball statistics yes. or well, I'll the be honest, Yankees. I grew up here and I, 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 I can't watch a baseball game. It's so boring. Um, <laughs> so I find it so I've, boring. I've tried. It's so boring. Um, Okay, here's here's the Will Rogers joke. The joke was, uh, and I guess he was a radio broadcaster in the 1940s, and he said when uh, during the Dust Bowl, the people in Oklahoma, they were really sort of the fields were barren and they were starving. They moved to California, and it was famously depicted in Steinbeck's book Grapes of Wrath. And uh, and when they moved here, uh, Will Rogers says, you know, when the Okies left Oklahoma to came to California, the average IQ went up in both states. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess the joke is that the people who left Oklahoma, they weren't the smartest Oklahomans. Um, but when they got to California, they were still smarter than the people who were already in California. <laughs> and 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 that stage migration really what, what does it mean is that like as you get better imaging, there's going to be somebody who in 1992 they were a stage three patient or stage two patient. Now you scan them with a better imaging in 2012, the same person, and you're gonna find some very occult metastatic disease and you're gonna make them a stage four. And what you've done is you've plucked somebody out of stage two and moved them to stage four. Stage four gets better because the person you plucked out, the person you're adding to stage four is like the best stage four patient ever. They just have a little bit of metastatic disease. And stage two gets better as well because the person you're plucking out was the worst actor in the stage two category. That was a person dragging your average down. And so it's kind of like this joke that you can get vast improvements in survival over time merely through better stage classification. Um, and so your point is that some of that might be going on here. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Uh, to totally agree. And I think I think just to build on what you're saying, you know, uh, ECOG did a study with GMCSF in the adjuvant setting, mm -hmm. and uh, David Lawson was the PI, and it was one of those studies where you know, the randomization was to was was to placebo was to was to observation or placebo, you know. Right. So so there was so it was a ni nice clean trial design, and so one of the interesting things about that was how few events happened, Correct. even in the highest stage three. Categories and and people were like, oh, stage, you know, anecdotally we all said, oh, stage three C. That's you're gonna see that's a bad, positive result right. in like two years because right. it's so bad. But on a clinical trial where everybody was staged at the beginning, it was interesting how few events happen. And, and I think that's been true for adjuvant trials in the many in the tumors. last in, four or five years, and and in many tumors and in melanoma where yeah. you know when we look at stage three B and C and stage three A B and C, you know, the, those are the Pembro and Nevo trials. It's kind of interesting how whether for that reason or whether for another reason, overall survival benefit has actually been hard to show in PD-1 adjuvant trials, even though it's super effective in the metastatic setting, 
nobody can question, you know, so, yes. so, so many trials to yes. really show it. But in the adjuvant setting, it's hard to show that PD-1 is producing an overall survival benefit as of yet. It, it's possible that it's gonna show up in the next few years I see. As, as time goes by. I was under the impression that, I guess, just to finish your point though, that like I think that um, your point is well taken, that stage migration will also lead to event rates lower than anticipated, which will make it harder for trials to yield results. But the question I was going to ask you was, I thought Alex Egermont's Pembro 3C has OS. Doesn't it have OS? Uh, Pembro has not, no OS no yet. OS. No OS yet. Mm. So it could be that, you know, again, the, there's just fewer events, or, or it could be that, uh, but, but another explanation that's been raised is that maybe salvage therapy is so effective right. in people who are carefully followed that, like, you know, you go from 3A to 3B or 3B to 3C or 3 to 4, right. that basically whether you use Pembro in the prevention setting of Pembro later, once somebody is metastatic, you probably have this, a similar rate of... There's a uh, fraction of people with, with, with tumors that are just waiting for the immune system to be unlocked, and they're gonna benefit whether it's stage four or it's stage three. Stage four or stage three. Right. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that while BRAF mech, I mean, I, I think just to continue with yeah, what yeah. we were saying before, even though in the metastatic setting, it clearly doesn't, you know, in DreamSeq yeah. and SickCombat, it's kind of show that, that in a metastatic setting, it seems like immunotherapy might be more effective, uh, especially with OS benefit. In the, the vice versa appears to be true for targeted right. therapy, which already in the, in the earlier analysis, you know, which, was, which was a five-year analysis of DAPTRAM mm -hmm. in the COMBI-AD trial, the showed a survival study. Yeah, it shows advantage, OS benefit. Showed, yeah. showed an OS benefit. Now, but the control arm, when they progress, did they get DAPTRAM later on? That's what, that's not clear. And mm -hmm. then what's further interesting about the DAPTRAM trial is that in the updated DAPTRAM trial, a survival benefit was not Still clearly not, oh, seen, see. which is just kind of interesting that the mm -hmm. survival benefit was seen early on, but not later on. I see. Um, and, you know, it could be that by that time, salvage DAPTRAM also, or, or salvage immunotherapy was, was there enough that, that the people who progressed, you know, could yeah. then get DAPTRAM or could get salvage. So I, I think, the, in, a, in a weird way, the adjuvant therapy uh, situation has is, is not been, uh, you know, has been, uh, it's the reverse of the metastatic setting mm -hmm. and uh, kind of makes you wonder uh, if, if, if maybe we are too quick with, by, by moving on to immunotherapy in, in, in that upfront setting or, or, or to rephrase that, mm -hmm. there are some patients for whom maybe target therapy is the right therapy, you know, hidden in all those curves, Correct. you can see that uh, in some patients, target therapy is clearly a long-term winner. And uh, you know, we have patients who have been on treatment since 2009. Oh, really? Yeah, really, uh, on target over 10 years. But and when they started in 2009, it was initially just BRAF inhibition. Well, we actually started the, the DAB, uh, the, 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 the Vemurafinib plus Kobe, uh, you know, what was a phase one trial, uh -huh. and we actually have patients who are still on, who are on that phase one trial wow. of Remurafenib and Cobimetinib, which, wow. you know, was many, yeah. many years ago. So, and, and I have patients from 2011, 2012 who were on uh, DAB-TRAM yeah. uh, in, that, in that phase one trial also. So, know, yeah. so, so certainly, yeah. the, the, there is some fraction of people durable in durable response to targeted therapy. Uh, targeted therapy, and, yeah. and, and not clear that for the whole population, immunotherapy is really a better option. I, I think it's just, 
you know, you're talking averages and you're talking statistical yeah. survival. Gr groups versus individuals. But, you know, I think one of the things that you're saying makes me think about is, um, you know, everything we've learned about adjuvant therapy that you learned when you entered, you know, the melanoma space, these were all things learned through solid tumors and cytotoxic drugs. And what did we learn? We learned that the same drugs that you give someone to metastatic breast cancer that would never cure a single person, there'd be no single long-term durable remission, if you give it to the right woman after a surgery and lymph node dissection, you would increase the curative fraction by some amount. That was true in lung, in colon, and breast. The targeted, th the, the cytotoxic drugs that were not curative in the metastatic setting were curative in that setting. And what was the logic? I think the logic is that there's some people with just a little bit of microscopic metastatic disease, and that cytotoxic drug comes at the right time, and it can kind of knock off maybe not the last cell, but the last you know few million cells until you're left with enough cells that the body can mop it up. So that like you're increasing a curative fraction. But fast forward into the era of IO, IO might be fundamentally different because you see dramatic durable responses even with bulky metastatic disease from time to time. And that might be the person whose biology was destined to do well with IO. And giving it to that same person a year earlier or two years or three years earlier, might be, it might be work great as well, but not any greater than giving it to them with more advanced disease. And so I think like the whole paradigm of adjuvant and IO needs to be rethought a little bit. Um, uh, and then the, the next point, targeted, has a different whole set of paradigm because a lot of these drugs, um, maybe they don't actually ch kill the last cell, but they fundamentally change the growth kinetics of it so that it's just growing really, really slowly or senescent, um, not exterminated. Um, and, you know, I think about this with GIST, a GI stromal tumor, where GI stromal tumor and HER2 positive breast cancer are like the only spaces, the initial successes with adjuvant targeted. And then we tried adjuvant targeted in everything. We tried Avastin everywhere and it always failed and Cetuximab always failed. You know, all these things failed. Finally, the IO, we're moving to adjuvant IO in different tumor types, but the question that always comes is, what would have happened if the control arm got IO when they progressed? And in a lot of these tumor types, unfortunately, they run it in countries where they don't have IO, so it's really not really the right question. But I think your point is very interesting to me. So I guess you still have some uncertainty about whether or not Pembro adjuvant improves OS. In fact, the Dibrafenib preventive data looks better in the adjuvant setting. And you probably think that even though we have DreamSeq, there's some people who, if we had a way to identify them, they'd benefit more from targeted therapy. Yeah, there's definitely people who just progress on immunotherapy. And, and you know, even though you don't capture those in the average statistics, you, you definitely see that, mm -hmm. that the people who just progress. And I think just to pick up on your earlier yeah. point, I do think targeted therapy in melanoma behaves more like some of those older cytotoxic therapies where- You eradicate you know, the last cell. Yeah, you er eradicate the last, or, or you eradicate enough cells that the body that, can that, it that it's an adjuvant benefit. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and now that immunotherapy is moving into the stage two setting, and you know, Jason Luke just presented this trial, the 7716 trial, looking at Pembro in stage two melanoma. Mm -hmm. So these, this is the higher end of stage two, but stage two, I, I still think it's a population where the vast majority of people are gonna be cured mm. just by surgery alone. Right. And uh, you know, you do have with immunotherapy, you do have this certain, you know, whether it's one percent or two percent, uh, lasting, mm -hmm. uh, durable, uh, you know, uh, IRAs. Toxicity. You know, yesterday yeah. we had a had a conference on uh, on endocrine AEs, and you know, many of the endocrine AEs are are tolerable. They're you know, thyroid or something. You just take a pill, but uh, but diabetes type one checkpoint induced diabetes or or adrenal insufficiency, those are pretty serious uh, events. And somebody was just mentioning that 
you know, he's on insulin, and and even the cost of insulin, you know, that mm-hmm. that's to maybe maybe to some people that's not a big deal, but to some people, like you're spending hundreds of dollars every month on the insulin yeah. pumps and the yeah. the the Libra yeah. thing to monitor your sugar, and then not to mention waking up in the middle of the night and finding out that your sugar is 44. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. So so I I do wonder if if the benefit is the same. Uh, earlier or later, whether it makes sense to, yeah, I, and I think the standard uh, thinking in our, or, or the common conventional wisdom in our field is that if you could cure people in the adjuvant setting, that's better than than risking uh, a relapse or risking, uh, you know, progression and then having to never really have that curative option. But you you kind of have to balance that against that, you know, real risk of, of uh, lasting lifelong toxicities in a you know, I, I remember this patient who had uh, type one diabetes, and and she was speaking yesterday mm-hmm. in this conference that we had, and she was talking about the fact that you know she got she did fine through the first uh, I want to say six months of Nevo, and after the I think it's the seventh or seventh month or something like that 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 she developed the type one diabetes, and she she always wonders like well, what if I had stopped at six months, which uh, I think right. You could have, I mean, it's just that in yeah. hindsight, you know. 2020. Yeah, right. it's right. It's like you don't, you know. Yeah, you didn't know. You, could, you could easily yeah, yeah. make the case that she was doing so well. So yeah. why not why just not do the whole you? year? Right. Okay. I have a question for you. And it's this. Um, we're both in academic medicine. And as you know, academic medicine has lots of brilliant people. But many are grumpy. <laughs> many are quite grumpy. Okay, I'll tell you, they're grumpy, and you know, they come, they see me, and then they, they I mean, people, people feel something about me, and they zoom in, and they start telling me all the things that they're grumpy about. You know, that's been like my whole career. People tell me things they're grumpy about. They feel like they can confide in me because they think I've probably heard worse. Uh, sure, it's probably, and it's usually true. But you're somebody who is not grumpy. You're the opposite. You're the one of the most op, you know, the one of the most positive people I know. I've always seen every time I see you, you're smiling. We have a good conversation. You know, you're always so positive. You come to the microphone at a talk. You're positive. You're positive. Okay, um, you're a very positive person. And at the same time, I know. I just want to make it yeah. clear: I'm not on any drugs or anything. <laughs> that's, well, that's part of the question. <laughs> yeah. What are you taking? Um, okay. At the same time, I know. You know, you have a rewarding job. But, you know, you take care of young people with metastatic disease. And I know as great a doctor as you are and as great the drugs are, not everyone's going to make it. Um, so you must have very tough days um, where you have to tell young people that they're going to die. And people you've known for many years are going to die. And so I guess my question to you is how do you balance the two? How do you balance who you are as a person, your personality, your temperament, with the fact you're doing something very difficult and at times can be very heartbreaking and preserve who you are, but still have the capacity to be there for your patients. I mean, I think it is difficult, and and you know, I've just just uh, finished a long clinic yesterday. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if I, I don't even know if I can continue this for, and I don't don't know if I have any special, you know, secrets or advice or or anything for anybody else. But yeah, I, I think it is. I mean. Oncology is a difficult field. I, I know that when we interview faculty candidates or, or even if we interview clinical research coordinators who you know, are dealing with patients every single day, I, I, I tell people that it's, it's a difficult field and it's not easy to be that one link that people think that you 
could grasp onto and, and that somehow can, you know, because as you know, it's not like we have any secrets or any, any kind of, you know, special uh, insight into a tumor that, that other people don't have. I mean, I, I think everything that we are talking about today, these are matters of public record and, you know, these are clinical trials and, and I, I you know, sure you're informed by your experience, but it's not, not, not like any, any particular insight. So yeah, I'm sorry to not to have any really good answers for that too, but maybe I should turn that to you. What do you, hmm. what's your, uh, I mean, you dealt with different uh, kind of tumors, but, but all equally, hmm. you know, difficult ones. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I wanted you to give me the answer. <laughs> um, I think, I think, I don't know. I guess I think a couple things. One is, I remember like, you know, when I was a young person, I thought about medicine. And of course, no one in my family is in medicine. But you know, I, I, uh, my mind always imagined what medicine was, and it never imagined the sort of elective surgeries that always go perfectly, which happen in some fields, you know. I mean, there's some happy, there's some what they call happy fields, but places where elective surgeries always go well. And to me, that's important. You know, you got to do these elective surgeries, but that's not the place of medicine I was most interested in. I was interested in medicine like as this place that cares for people who are really suffering and tries to do better. And I guess it is tough, I think. And, you know, I mean, I'll tell you in a minute, like what I think is the hardest part. Um, Because the hardest part isn't when the patient dies. The hardest part is when you feel like you could have done something different and then they died and you know and maybe you're wrong maybe like you couldn't have done anything different but for me i find the hardest is like when i'm on really busy consult service and there's like somebody who comes in with fever and leg pain and i start to think well what's the and i have to sort of, and this is somebody with cancer and if you're not really good at being a diagnostician you know that person could die because you screw it up or you might miss the diagnosis um and that is a different challenge than you know a cancer patient progressing through the treatments where we you know, we'll all agree there is a canonical, there's some trials we can hang our hat on and we can argue about and you could call an expert or something. But the diagnostic stuff I think is where there's a lot of without a safety net. But I guess what I would say is I feel like the way I judge myself on a daily basis, even though it's always hard to lose somebody, especially with somebody you've known for years. And, um, but the way I judge myself on a daily basis is if it weren't me in that room that day or in, for that person's cancer journey, would their cancer journey have been the same? And I try to think, like, would the other, I mean, maybe you'll find another doctor, but I hope I was extra compassionate, and I hope I took a little extra time and answered the questions, and I hope I made decisions that were extra compatible with what the person wanted, and I hope that in retrospect, that even if something bad happens, I did everything that was right, and I could stand up in front of a room of peers and present the case, and you all couldn't say, I would have done, you know, there's no, there's nothing I missed, you know, and I think that, like, that's what I'm striving for. But how do you reconcile that with like who you are? I feel like, I don't know, that's the tough part. I think who you are changes a lot in this field. And it changes from when you're, I don't know, when I started, I was 29 and now I'm, uh, oh, as of the end of this month, I'm 39, you know? So I'm 10 years into the oncology world, you know? And so I think I feel very different than I did between 19 and 29, from 29 to 39. And I think that isn't that also the pleasure of being, a, like what it means to be a doctor is that it changes who you are. It is, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I, I totally agree with uh, what you said. And, you know, I, I think in, in immunotherapy, there's been this feeling that you need to push people right to the edge or, or possibly even a little bit beyond the edge to get the maximum benefit from immunotherapy. And there's this thinking that if you don't have any side effects whatsoever, uh, that perhaps it's not going to work. And there's some data for that, although, 
you know, it's 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 the kind of data that that's a lot yeah. of times in medicine where you know you don't know whether it's just because you're treating people longer or it's just because that sticks to your mind or whether that's a true association. But uh, yeah, so so I you know I, I was just talking about this patient who I may have treated too long, and uh, you know she ended up having diabetes, and and I have somebody just like her who I think I treated too short, mm. and. Uh, you know, she went ahead, she had a great response uh, rapidly to Ipinevo, had a bump in her liver function test uh, to, you know, several times upper limit of normal. And so I was like, okay, well, she has had a complete response. You know, maybe she, maybe this is all she needs. And then I saw her back in clinic and lo and behold, that lymph node that had a complete response, just the next station up, she has a lymph node recurrence there and she was like, yeah, maybe mm. we should have continued longer. And I was like, yeah, maybe we should have continued longer. Although we could probably still do that at this point. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's, at least for me, I think I pretty much second guess every single decision, whether it's good or bad, even the good ones. I, I wonder like, well, did that person really need to, yeah. uh, you know, get two years of treatment? Yeah. Would one year be enough? Uh, and we could have gotten the same benefit, you know? Yeah, I feel the same way. And then you know, uh, yeah, and, and so many decisions, even like the decision to, um, as end of life nears, and the decision of when to stop treatment. Um, you know, on a couple occasions, I've had a really strong-willed patient sort of push back against my intuition and say, let's keep going. Um, and, you know, that's always a balancing act, how much to push at sort of the end of life. And sometimes I kind of regretted that I mm, sort of didn't push back against the patient more. But then a few times also I've been proven wrong when the patient was right, that they were able to get through much more, few more months than I expected. And so it's always very humbling. You know, what you said at the beginning, which is that like, it's not a science what we do. I mean, it's informed by science, there's lots of science in it, but the day-to-day -day going in that room and deciding what to do, that's not a science. No, I absolutely agree that it's like a set of practices and and set of you know techniques that are common across medicine. But but yeah, it's definitely not. And And, and I do feel like I've learned so much from patients about you know, what is it that really matters to them? And sometimes we think uh, it's the word complete response or the word partial response, which, you know, means a lot to me yeah. and, and means a lot to you. And, yeah. and, you know, we think that's, but that's not necessarily what matters to patients. And, and, you know, they value so many other things, you know, autonomy and, you know, maybe not having surgery. Like it's a surprising number of patients think that just not having surgery is like a huge win mm. and or not having radiation or not needing chemo or not needing immunotherapy is you know just just being watched you know the, the whole debate about whether observation makes sense or or, right. or treatment makes sense right? Right, right and and for a lot of people just the independence and the just the ability to get on with their lives make means so much and then vice versa you have patients for whom you know they think that successful surgery is by itself uh a, a, a you know desirable kind of kind of goal or 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 braving intense treatment uh is is you know uh, a, a, a mark of stoicism mark of stoicism yeah. or mark of courage so yeah we don't uh, yeah yeah it's just the i i, I read this uh, interesting study that you know in some professions your performance actually gets worse over time, you know? Yeah. And, and some some things, you know, I like to think that we are learning and, yeah. you know, and, and I'm hopefully even I'm 
you know, a few years older, I, I'll have learned a few things, but yeah. I, I hopefully medicine is not one of those performance, uh, one of those uh, places where, you know, like you actually get to be not so good a, yeah, a not, professional after I, you've had those scarring, yeah, you know, the, all that tissue is built up, yeah. the scar tissue is yeah. built up, right? I, I, I really wonder about that. Well, the good news is stage migration will always make your numbers look. <laughs> <laughs> will always make your numbers look better. But no, the bad news is, um, I guess I, I'm not aware of anyone has studied in medical oncology. But many years ago, there's a paper I think of hospitalist medicine and practice, and hospitalists, of course, you know they they on average get kind of random case mix, and so you can do sort of some nice natural experiments. And this person's paper I think argued that like they actually peaked five years into practice. Because five years into practice, you remember everything you learned in your hospital medicine. You still have the book smarts. You also have some little experience under the belt. But then once you get further out, then your book smarts goes down and your, your experience goes up. But unfortunately, the book smarts was necessary too. And I worry, in our, in our, I, don't, I just wonder in our field what happens. Because you're right. Like single experiences that you have that are very powerful, they do linger in your mind. And so the person you pushed too hard on too much therapy and something very bad happened now you're very, I think you're very skittish about doing that again, even if that was the right thing to do on average. And then the person who you didn't push hard enough and then bad thing happened, you wanna push harder in the future. And you worry that you're actually misset your, your thermostat based on the last case and try to avoid that. And I think to some degree that's how the trials help you and, and talking to colleagues I think helps you too. Yeah. Well, I, I remember reading this Atul Gawande piece in the New Yorker about mm. you know mid-career, uh, you know, what, what does mid-career teaching and mid-career mentoring look like? And I do feel like that's, I mean, I know, I know we all hate our MOCs and, yeah. and stuff like that, but, and, and maybe that's not even really the right way to, to, to educate yourself. But uh, I mean, I, I personally love listening to podcasts. I, I listen to them all the time. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, you know, whether, whether you need to have somebody, uh, and I, I, I was almost, you know, I, I had a visiting, uh, friend from from Europe and I was gonna do like a thing where you know have have him oversee me in clinic mm. and just just just, yeah. just to just to try to learn some more but you know because of COVID it wasn't possible to do that in live and 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 I, I don't feel like you get the same uh you know benefit over Zoom but uh I, I wonder if there's a way to to just to refresh yourself or to undo those scars you yes. know from 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 all those years of yeah. uh, clinical practice, right? I think, I think the answer is, I mean, and you've worked here long enough that you're probably eligible for sabbatical. You could probably take six months at some yeah. point, and then you could go to Gustav Rusi, or you could go you know, someplace in Europe, and you could be the shadow on the wall. Maybe that's what I should do. It'd be really kind of fun, too. Yeah. But I guess the last thing I want to say, and I know you have to run, the last thing I want to say is, um, you know, I sometimes think about the young people training to be in our seats someday, and, and beyond us, you know, they're going to be there in this long career. And I do think the pendulum was misset when I was a trainee, and certainly when you were a trainee, which was that you know you're asked to stay first person there every day and last person there every day, and it was hard work, and you know there was no sympathy, and if there was no such thing as a sick day, I mean I think I was literally one day it was the, I only called in sick once in my entire training, and I was re, you I probably want to I'd be better off dead, like I was bad, I was in a bad state. Um, there was and and I and the person who covered me that day to this day they bring it up to this day they bring it up. <laughs> They still bring it up every time I meet this person. So, um, you know, so, okay, that was too bad. That was too much. But now I see, I worry the pendulum has swung too far the other way. I see, you know, um, COVID-19, which is a serious threat, but, you know, that keeps the med students out of, like, 
I mean, they're not in the clinic for years. I mean, now we're two years. I haven't, where are these students? They're, uh, you know, a lot of them are at home and are coming to the Zoom visits or something like that. Um, people are pushed out of the hospital. A colleague of mine worked in a place where there's a forest fire and it was smoky. And then the university said, med students aren't coming to work this week because we don't want to open and close the door for the medical students because it'll make our HEPA filter work too hard. I said, why can't they just come in the morning all at once and then <laughs> bring them in one? I was like, is that really the issue? The forest, you can't run your filter? Okay, well, you know, these are kinds of things. And then, you know, there are a whole bunch of other reasons. There's always some reason not to have class, not to go to, not to, go to the wards or something. And I think like... I don't know, I just don't think that's great preparation for the job itself. Because the job itself is like, I don't know, you're gonna be there one day in clinic at 4.30 p.m. and someone's gonna come in a total wreck and you're gonna be there till 7.30 to get them where they need to go. Or you're gonna look at a scan result at three after in the afternoon and it's gonna be explosive disease. And you didn't expect that because it was all going so well. And then you're gonna be with them and trying to talk through what to do next. And then you're gonna be in the tough situation of the toughest situation where you have no options left. Everything is exhausted and you real and, and yet they have some decent performance status and they want to try and you're thinking of trials off you know that you can refer them to or where you can send them. And um, and then the toughest situation where you feel like you could have done things differently, which I think, you know, wakes me from sleep. And so I don't know. I do, I don't think we help them if we teach them that medicine is this thing where you can always get a week off if there's too much smoke in the air or, you know, whatever. I mean, I feel like we're doing such a disservice to the, the next group. Agree, agree. And, and I, I think we have this apprenticeship model and maybe you could argue that the apprenticeship model doesn't fit medicine and maybe we need a more academic seminary kind of model. But I personally enjoyed the apprenticeship mm -hmm. model and, and, you know, I, I, I I've heard people say, well, if you have the independent, you know, if you're independently uh, seeing patients in clinic, that's that's better than seeing patients with somebody else. But I, what I think is that you have your your whole life to do that. Yeah, you, exactly. You've got that yeah. independent, you're, whether it's in private practice or whether you're in, in your own field, nobody's gonna look over your shoulder aside from that one year right. and a half. So, and I personally always enjoyed the, you know, thinking, okay, well, I do this, but then your attending says, well, you know, actually, well, how, what about this? You know, what about the fact that the patient is getting treated for colitis and well, have you considered that? And you're like, oh, wow, I know I didn't consider that. Mm -hmm. Now I know uh, that that's something you could do or uh, looking and reading scan. You know, I, I just feel like yeah. there's a lot of apprenticeship yeah. aspects to medicine. I mean, it, it is a more highfalutin yeah. specialty in some ways than, you know, making machine tools. But yeah. but I, I do think that that hands-on. It's important. Uh, like, like it is getting to this academic kind of like you sit in a classroom for 75 hours and then you're basically you're yeah. ready to ready to go yeah no i agree with you and i guess that makes me think about like um uh, I, I'd always find the people who I really liked. There's something about their disposition that I liked. And then when I was a fellow, and then I would go to all their clinics, you know, and I'd kind of follow them around everywhere. Um, and it gave me a lot of uh, opportunity to see how does somebody who's been practicing for 35 years tell someone there's no treatment options left. And you know, you think you know how you do it, but you you know, no one ever you never saw you never saw someone do it. And you see someone do it, you see five different people do it five different ways. I've seen people do it. You know, people practice for 30 plus years and the patient thanks them at the end for doing it and, and hugs them, you know, and, and I wonder how they do that. How do they have such a, 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 such a conversation where they were heard like that and how do they build that relationship over years? And, and, and you're right, then you go off in your practice, you're never going to get a chance 
Although maybe I'll come shadow you someday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna come shadow. I'm gonna come shadow you. But yeah, you don't get the same opportunity to see other people do it, and it's a missed opportunity if you think you can do it all without the apprenticeship. It's a uh, well. I mean, I I do think that I mean I I listen to your podcast. I I, I it's not. I'm not saying that that's the only way you can educate right. yourself, but but. I do think it's great to have all these different opportunities to educate yourself. And I mean, I personally enjoy, like like I've been in universities my entire life and I kind of like the seminar, you know, I, I you know, as opposed to the canned lectures, which, you know, we've all been guilty of giving to, to hapless, yes. you know, <laughs> helpless uh, students yeah. and, and helpless uh, faculty members. But but I do think that, that where, where you push people and, and at Memorial, there was this very Socratic, Mm-hmm. kind of style which you know may, may, maybe maybe that would turn some people off or maybe that, that did turn people off but I, I do feel like it does push you to justify your treatment yeah. choices and and in some ways helps you to clarify your thinking yeah. I, I guess my only regret is that that's not something that continues throughout your career right. at a certain time people are reluctant to question you and, and maybe don't push you as hard and you don't get clarified in your own thinking right yeah well the good news is no one's reluctant to push me hard <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adil, you got to go. Right. Thank you so much for doing this. A real great, pleasure great. to talk to you. Thank you. Love to have Thank you back. Thank you, Thank yeah. you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.